Welcome to our evening service. Uh, this is City Reform Presbyterian Church. I want to welcome you in the name of Christ. My name is Pastor Joseph Bianco, and I'm glad that you're with us this evening. Uh, before uh, we read the text, let me begin with a prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, Christ. We thank you for the salvation we find in him. And that through our union to Jesus, you have given us also uh, his body, which is the church. And we thank you uh, for the fellowship we share as believers. And as we uh, turn our attention to this text of 1 Corinthians, we pray that we would be edified uh, by this ancient text as we consider our relationships today. And how this text would apply to our lives and your church now. Father, we thank you for your word, and it has the power to shape our hearts and our lives, and we pray uh, that you would do that now. We ask in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So I'm going to be reading uh, from 1 Corinthians, uh, page 6 and 7 of your bulletin, and we'll start in verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're starting our new sermon series on 1 Corinthians, and we'll probably be in this book a while, since 1 Corinthians has 16 chapters and a lot of very interesting and theologically rich topics. So this book, let me just introduce the book a little bit, it was written around A.D. 54 by the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church, uh, which was a church that Paul planted with the help of Priscilla and Aquila. 
Corinth is located on an isthmus between the Peloponnesian Peninsula and the Greek mainland. Um, so an isthmus is a kind of, uh, it's kind of like a strip of land. You can think about it if you've ever driven down to Myrtle Beach. You drive, drive on that strip of land connecting two uh, larger pieces of land. Uh, it's a narrow strip connecting two major powers, and Corinth uh, is right at the western end of this isthmus. So consequently, Corinth was at the center of great diversity, uh, various cultures, many religions, and ethnic groups, and they all passed through this narrow isthmus. Uh, so you can think of Corinth kind of like New York, a lot of different people, a lot of different cultures, a lot of different beliefs. Uh, Corinth was Roman-ruled and under Roman law. And at the center of Corinth was a huge temple to Athena. So Paul is writing to the Corinthian church for a variety of reasons, but the main one is to address uh, various problems and disagreements that they were having. Now as we come into this letter of the Corinthians, um, we could come in with judgment because this church had a lot wrong. Uh, but here's my encouragement to you. Uh, Paul begins this letter reminding these very sinful Corinthians that they really are believers. And that he ends our section pointing them to the Savior. So Paul reminds the Corinthians, and he reminds us as well, that it is Jesus who saves. And all of us is a temptation to add to the salvation of Jesus, either by our good works or maybe lashing ourselves in the back when we sin. Paul is gracious in reminding them who they are, encouraging them to agreement, and exhorting them that it is Christ alone who saves. So those are my three points that we're going to begin with. Uh, you really are Christians. When I first uh, read this introduction in verses 1 to 9 of Paul's letter, I was struck in two ways. Uh, first is that Paul is very gracious in addressing the church uh, with some enormous sin struggles. So the sin issues of the Corinthians were vast and serious. Uh, they ranged from issues of sexual sin to false teaching in the church to church division and many other problems that we'll read about. Um, but after introducing himself and his apostolic authority, by which Paul writes, Paul's first words are not condemnation or rebuke. His first words are, this is who you are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, sanctified and called to be saints. So I'll flesh that out in a minute. The second thing I'm struck by uh, is Paul's love for this really messy church. He says, grace and peace to you, verse 30. In verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you. In verse 10, he calls them his brothers. So Paul loved this messy church, and he loved them while they were acting quite sinfully. So Paul's first reminder to a church in grave sin is, agiazo agiaz. Sanctified and called to be a saint. So you can kind of hear it in the English, but it sounds a lot closer in the Greek. Agiazo, agias. Very similar. So here's what Paul is saying. To a church caught in sin, in shame, and even rebellion against Paul's God-given authority, he reminds the Corinthian church that they are both sanctified sinners and sinful saints. They were sanctified means that Paul really believes these people who act this way have faith. Sanctified means washed, 
cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And yet, they are not what they should be. Paul is calling them to act like saints or members of the household of God. They are one church, a small part of a global church. Verse 2, of those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Now, I don't know if you can hear it, but while the introduction is gracious, it is also backhanded. Uh, kind of like a backhanded compliment. So, for example, things you should not say to someone, uh, wow, you look so thin in that outfit. Or, uh, your hair looks great. Did you get it cut? So you may not have caught it, but there's a reason that Paul is establishing his uh, apostleship in the beginning of this letter. There's a reason he's reminding the Corinthians they're part of a larger church. There's a reason he is telling them they have been sanctified and are called to be saints. And the reasons are that the Corinthians are not acting like Christians. And yet, verse 4, Paul reminds them of the grace of God given to them in Christ Jesus. He says in verse 5, that because of this grace, they were enriched in all speech and knowledge, which likely will refer to spiritual gifts. In verse 6, that Christ was confirmed among them, which is Paul confirming they are believers. Now verses 7 to 8 address spiritual gifts, particularly and that will be another point of discussion that we'll get to in chapters uh, 12 to 14. Uh, but here I want to point one thing out to you about spiritual gifts, and that is that the overarching drive of verses 7 to 8 are not on spiritual gifts alone. But the sustaining power of Christ, verse 7, the faithfulness of God, verse 8, and the fellowship uh, that we share as believers, the end of verse 8. So gifts are important. They're part of our faith, but Jesus is both the giver and the sustainer of our faith. So I mention this because we'll read later that the Corinthian church will have uh, temptations to elevate some spiritual gifts over other spiritual gifts. Paul is clear to say in the beginning of this letter, Jesus will sustain you to the end, and that God is faithful, and he supplies gifts to you. Now let's pause for a minute and reflect on why it's important that Paul is spending so many verses in the beginning of this letter to say to a particularly messy church, you really are Christians, and Jesus is really your Savior and sustainer of your faith. So think to yourself about this question. When you sin in a particularly grievous or large way, how do you feel about your faith? When you're depressed, or anxious, or envious, or numb, or sad, or distant? How do you feel about your faith? When you're in church conflict, how do you feel about your faith? Your faith probably feels weak. I find it fascinating and encouraging that Paul's first move is to set the foundation. You were sanctified. This is who you are. Not the sin or the depression or even the conflict you're experiencing. Rather, let's start in the foundation, which is Christ. Also, there is a temptation to add to the salvation of Jesus. You think, well, you know, maybe this week you thought, I, I was a good Christian because I saw God using my spiritual gift. Maybe I shared the gospel this week, so I know I'm a Christian this week. But next week, if I sin sexually, then I'll doubt 
Friends, Paul is clear to say, if you are in Christ, you are sanctified. Grace and peace are now yours. He will sustain you to the end, guiltless. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus. God is faithful, and it is Him who calls you. So I want that to be an encouragement to you, City Reforms. When you are not faithful, He is faithful. When you do good, or when you sin, does not change who you are in Christ. So together, let's rely on God as our sustainer and faithful one. So, um, let's follow, follow Paul's flow of thought. So, point one, you really are Christians. Point two, because you are Christians, strive for agreement. This is my second point. In verses 10 to 15, Paul introduces the first real conflict in the church, which is divisions that have formed in the body of Christ. In verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. So the first thing we learn about these Christians is that they should strive for agreement. Now I want to pause on this point, because if you're new to Christianity and to a church, you may come into the church for the first time and look around you, and you may feel like, wow, these people seem to have it all together. I don't feel like I fit in. On the other side, if you've been a Christian a while, you know that churches are for the sick. They're for the poor, they're for the needy, for the brokenhearted, for the sinner, for the weak, the depressed, for the confused. And you know what happens when you get a bunch of sinners together, which is disagreement. We can disagree. Christians do disagree. Now that may sound like an understatement, but let me put this before you. Uh, And I I would argue that disagreement in and of itself is not bad. It's not bad at all. Paul knows there will be disagreement, but the problem lies when we cease to strive for agreement. Verse 10, I appeal to you that you all agree, and that that there be not divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So not just agreement, but a sense of unity, a sense of having the same mind, the same judgment. That means the same opinion or intent or purpose. When you're in conflict with another church member, or really any conflict, uh, it tends to go one of two ways. You either blow up or you close up. You either blow up or you close up. You tend to anger and judgmentalism or you give up. You leave when you stop talking to that person. A godly response to church conflict is a willingness and a desire to stick in it with a conflicting party having the same mind, the same goal, which is the glory of Christ and the good of His church. A godly response is to strive for agreement, and that may take time. One thing I love about our session, I have to give a lot of credit to Matt, uh, and that is that our session strives for agreement. We strive for agreement. Uh, if one session member disagrees, we don't just go and outvote that person. Uh, we could do that if we wanted to in our Presbyterian form of government. But we take the time to hear the other side. And we may put off voting on something until we've had time for that concern of the one to be thoroughly addressed. Now, how about in your life? Of course, this doesn't just apply to broad church conflicts, but it could apply to any conflict in your life. Maybe with another church member or a fellow believer not part of this church. When there's conflict, 
do you strive for agreement? Do you stick in there with them? Do you give them time and space to think and pray about the conflict? Do you give space for the opportunity uh, for the Spirit of God to work in that person's heart? So I've said this before, but one of my most often answered prayers is when I pray for the Spirit of God to convict the person with whom I have some conflict or I think there's a problem before I've said a word. That is striving for agreement. Blowing up and closing up or not. Now the particular conflict mentioned here is one of church factions, meaning different groups were formed in the church by different people of opposing theological concerns. So uh, first note the title, Chloe's People. Uh, Chloe's people is some faction of people who belong to Chloe. It could be her family members. It could be other people we don't really know, but they are the ones sounding the alarm. And then there are four divisions are given in verse 12. Those following Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and Christ. So presumably these are factions of people in the church who follow a particular leader uh, related to who that person baptized. Verse 14, Paul says, I thank God I baptized none of you except Christmas and Gaius so that no one may say you were baptized in my name. So this is pretty messy, isn't it? This doesn't feel like uh, representing their Savior as the body of Christ. This feels like politics. It feels like vying for power or status. And Paul's response is verse 13. Is Christ divided? When I was in high school, I experienced some pretty uh, severe church conflict. Uh, We had a a new youth pastor who was very soon after being hired, found to have sexually molested one of the girls in our high school youth group. And while everyone in the church agreed uh, it was a bad incident, uh, nonetheless it divided the youth group. Essentially everyone left, nearly 100 children, and had to be rebuilt from the ground up. A year later, um, my old pastor of the same church decided that he would reveal a deep and personal sexual sin from the pulpit without warning and any thought to how it would affect the church. So I was a child then, uh, but I'll tell you that something was going on in that church for all of these things to be happening. Uh, Something was going on in the members or the leadership. I don't really know. I still don't know. Um, Thankfully, I had transitioned to college by that point. Um, One problem, I believe, uh, however, that I did observe was a loose and undefined adherence to Scripture. How do we strive for agreement? Brothers and sisters, we pour over the Scriptures. We pour over the Scriptures. We search God's Word to find and test and study the conflict at hand. We apply all the wisdom of Scripture to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. James 1.19. We make sure we're good listeners. Proverbs 25.12 and Proverbs 19.20. We bear all the fruits of the Spirit in our interactions. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. I know many of you have been through church conflict uh, of other churches in the past. So let me be clear about one thing, though. By the grace of God, when you hear me on this, by the grace of God, 
our church has seen a great deal of unity. Through the pandemic especially, we clung to each other. We loved each other. We served one another. And I'm honored to be part of this body of Christ. So Paul says to the Corinthians, you really are Christians. Strive for agreement. And my last point is that no matter how big we fail, Christ is always Savior. So Christ is always Savior. So baptismal divisions is the first of many problems that we'll read about in the Corinthian church. But when you consider it, uh, these are actually significant divisions in the church of Corinth. Imagine if our church split into four factions labeling certain leaders that they would follow. That would be a nightmare. Now, Apollos is someone that Paul knew well. Uh, he was a friend and fellow laborer in Christ. He had, an impressive, he had impressive rhetorical skills, and the Corinthians gladly, gladly received him after uh, Paul had departed from Corinth. Uh, Cephas is Aramaic for the name Peter, and both names refer to Peter the Apostle. And unlike Paul, Peter was married and had traveled to Corinth with, with his wife. That's um, chapter 9, verse 5. And then lastly, one faction took the slogan, I follow Christ, which could have been a rejection of any godly leadership or perhaps a proper reaction to the other three factions that were happening. Uh, we don't really know. Now, it may sound strange or archaic that Christians would do this, but uh, we still see this happening today. Um, many of you listen to the podcast from Marcel and the power that Mark Driscoll had uh, to create a following. And because that church was built around Mark Driscoll, when the when Driscoll fell, so did the church. Now, there are still disagreements today surrounding baptism. I was part of an organization in college that at first seemed like a real Christian group. Uh, but six months later, I found out that they had a very cult-like belief concerning baptism. Their belief was that the act of baptism itself saved you. And at first, this doesn't maybe seem like a big deal to you, but when you can only be saved in that church with that belief, then all of a sudden, most of the Christians around the world will be condemned. Now, to be fair to them, their belief originally started in one church, and it's changed as their denomination grew, but many still hold to a very legalistic and cult-like form of Christianity. When I found out what their views were, I searched the scriptures. Scripture was my guide, and thankfully I was given eyes to see that, that danger that was before me. I was also given other believers, a, a, particularly a pastor who helped me search and understand the scriptures. So you're not alone. I want you to be able to come to your, your pastors when you have questions. Again, disagreements in and of themselves are not bad, but left unchecked and unchallenged, they can turn into factions. Now Paul ends this section with some interesting words. In verse 17 he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, the word to preach in Greek is more literally translated to proclaim good news. And the word eloquent uh, in the Greek text does not exist, uh, and that in the original language. So the words uh, literally in the Greek are sophia logu, or the wisdom of discourse. Eloquent wisdom, which eloquent wisdom is the way they capture this uh, idea. 
Paul is communicating that the way the church is going to stick together is not by some eloquent leader or even someone who is good at debating ideas or philosophy, the wisdom of discourse. But the way the church will remain united is through proclaiming a simple message. The simple message is the good news. The good news that Christ was raised from the dead, conquered death, and paid for all of our sins on the cross. The gospel, which is the good news, is the central message of Paul. And since Christ was raised, and because Jesus gave his spirit to the Corinthian church, then the way forward for them was the humble submission to their Savior. Baptism is not the way forward. It's important, but it's only a sign. It does not create saving faith. Also, having a good leader can be helpful in our walk with Jesus. But following the right leader does not save you. Jesus saves you. Lastly, and I have to be careful how I say this, having good doctrine and right understanding of the Bible is very important in the life of a believer. But right belief does not save you. Jesus saves you. There are plenty of people in this world who understand the doctrines of Christian faith and have no relationship with Jesus. Opponents of Christianity can know Him, but they can't really know Him. The power that Paul is referring to in verse 17 is not the power of eloquence or even theological precision or particular leaders. It's the power of Jesus Christ displayed on the cross as He hung there for your sins. The power is the power of Christ that He so loved you that He would give up His life to save yours. The power is that God the Father would give His only Son so that you may be saved. Now I need to land on one point as I close with this. This passage should actually bring you a wonderful sense of assurance. It should, if you really think about it. Corinth was a really troubled church. <laughs> With a lot of problems, and yet Paul reminds them, this is who you are. He challenges them to strive for agreement, and he points them to the only one who will save. Now, in your life, you may have doubts. You may have disagreements. Maybe even a church conflict, or a family conflict, or conflict with a friend or a boss. Maybe you're stuck in some great sin. But as we'll, as we'll see in this uh, letter to the Corinthians, wherever you are, you, like the Corinthian church, need to be reminded that you are sanctified. You are called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You really are believers, even if you sin. You really are united to Jesus and His church, even when you disagree. You really do love the Lord and have His Spirit residing in you. You really do belong to Him, brought into the family of God, united to Jesus by faith. If I could say it another way, whether you failed really big this week, or if you had an amazing week, either way, you are and will remain a son or daughter of God. Your actions cannot undo what Jesus did on the cross. When we say that we are not judged by our actions, when we're given a great gift, we don't deserve what do we call that? We call that grace. The grace you've been saved. So this week, church family, would you go out with confidence that you belong to Jesus, 
Even when you sin, you really are believers. Strive for agreement and remember that Christ is Savior. Let's pray.